It's something that we have deep in us to resist this constant insults as the deplorables, you know, as the ones clinging to religion and guns, as uneducated. And I'm glad to see this revolt, you know, of the working class and this demand for nationalism because, you know, national pride and economic nationalism is more often the way that working people get, you know, benefits from a society. You know, the working people need to demand some national allegiance and some some national binding with the with the ruling elites. Yeah, I, I'm very excited about that. Hello, welcome back to the Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill, and my special guest this week, Michael Schellenberger. Michael, welcome to the show. Good to be back, Brendan. Good to see you. Yeah, I should say welcome back to the show. You're a returning guest. We love having you on, and there's always far too much for us to talk about because your knowledge is wide ranging, famously so. Uh, but let's try and talk about as much as we can. Um, I definitely want to get your view on American politics and where things are at right now. But I do want to kick off with something you've been writing about for a few years, which is the climate change issue, because it's back in the news. It's never really out of the news, but it's kind of having one of its resurgent moments. We've just come out of COP27 with a kind of deal to help the third world. Uh, Just Stop Oil are going slightly off the rails and I think are really pointing to the the more deranged element in climate apocalypse politics. Um, Greta Thunberg is accusing people of greenwashing. There's lots going on in relation to something that you've covered quite extensively in your writing, especially in your brilliant book, which we've discussed before, Apocalypse Never, Why Environmental Alarmism Hurts Us All. To kick off this part of the discussion, I did want to ask you about Just Stop Oil and these new forms of protests, which now are taking the form of throwing paint on works of art, uh, spray painting public buildings, blocking roads, inconveniencing working people, a really forceful form of protest, which is designed to save the planet from the coming apocalypse. Do you think Just Stop Oil is indicative of where the green movement is going more broadly in terms of slightly losing the plot? Yeah, I think it's, we're in a really interesting moment. I mean, so obviously we had Extinction Rebellion in 2019. Uh, You and I were actually together in Britain discussing it. Mm. And that was different in the sense that it was much more uh, extremist rhetoric, I think we were seeing. We saw a lot of people engaging in extremely disruptive civil disobedience. I think what's new about Just Stop Oil, which, of course, the same founder as Extinction Rebellion, Roger Hollum, what's new is that you have them attacking works of art. And the accusation is that why are you upset about us attacking works of art rather than being upset about the planet? Psychologists call this crazy making because one can obviously enjoy a Van Gogh or a Vermeer or a Klimt and also enjoy the Grand Canyon and also enjoy watching whales. There's absolutely no conflict between appreciating human beauty and natural beauty. And so to suggest that there is some conflict or that people going to the museum somehow don't care about the natural world or don't care about climate change, it's deliberately insulting. It's obviously provocative, but it's it's nihilistic in the sense that it's really empty. There's not some broader significance. So if you contrast the Just Stop Oil protests to the, the say, the protests to desegregate racially segregated soda counters in the United States in the 1950s, or the Montgomery bus boycott, where African-Americans refused to take the bus, or Gandhi's salt march, you know, where the, the Indians, you know, walked many hundreds of miles to the ocean to get their own salt so they wouldn't have to buy British salt. In each of those cases, the protest was specifically tied to the demand mm-hmm. for desegregation, for independence. In this case, it's totally devoid. There's no relationship at all. It's totally empty. It's totally insulting. So I think it's just a deepening of the nihilism. I think the other interesting thing that's different now is that you see ordinary people taking action into their own hands, dragging protesters off the streets and and, and effectively doing so effectively. That contrast to the response from the security guards and the authorities who are being, you know, they're acting like children, like they're unable to like just pull the protester off the artwork. They're, They're acting like, oh, I, you know, what can I do? 
There's, uh, you know, the, of course, the media is freaking out that the police are even beginning to start to prosecute and to enforce these laws. So I think the final thing I'll mention, Brendan, is just the the infantilization of the protests. I think we've seen this. This is another change. The infantilization of climate change politics through the selection of Greta Thunberg as the leader of the movement, in contrast to, say, Al Gore or John Kerry or some other group. The the choosing of a child as the leader of the movement, then I see the echoes of that in these kinds of protests that are much more like temper tantrums, throwing food on the wall, dumping milk onto the floor, um, gluing yourself to things. These are childish behaviors. And I'm not suggesting that this is a conscious decision. I am suggesting, however, that this kind of regression, this infantilization of climate activism is, I think, quite consistent with the dissent and the, the turn towards nihilism. It's gotten more base, more reductive. Some of that you can ascribe to social media. But I think some of it you just ascribe to the issue itself, which is the fact that the truth of the matter is most nations are reducing their carbon emissions. Europeans have been reducing their carbon emissions for decades. Um, to the extent to which there's some like policy agenda, it's basically to deprive poor countries of cheap energy. So that's sort of my summary thumbnail of it. I've written a series of articles in particular lately about the narcissism that I think we're seeing here. This is also a final thing I'll mention and I'll shut up. When I was involved in climate change politics 20, 25 years ago, it was we're trying to save the planet because climate change will hurt poor people in Africa. Now you've got these upper middle class, highly educated British youth saying my future is in jeopardy. Well, obviously it's not. I mean, I mean, maybe it's not obvious, but there's no scientific scenario in which the British young people in 2050 or 2100 are somehow going to be imperiled by climate change. They're going to be wealthier than ever. But there's a, so there's a narcissism in it. There's an infantilization and there's a nihilism. I think all those things have been happening over the last few years, but just have been increasingly intensified with just up oil. Yeah, I think that's a, a really good description of where climate protest is going. And I particularly like your point, um, pushing back on the comparison between Just Stop Oil protests and Extinction Rebellion protests with earlier forms of protests, uh, including the civil rights movement, uh, the activity of people like Rosa Parks, and going back even further, the suffragettes. I've been involved in media discussions here in the UK about Just Stop Oil over the past few weeks. And the number of times I've heard respectable Radio presenters and TV presenters uh, depicting Just Stop Oil as being uh, the heirs to the suffragette movement or the heirs to the civil rights movement, and even comparing their actions by sitting in the middle of the road to Rosa Parks' refusal to change seats on on the bus. I've heard that so many times, and it's such an offensive and inaccurate comparison for the reasons that you've outlined. And one of the things that strikes me listening to you there is this issue of what their demands are and the fact that their protest now seems pretty separate from any clear demand or pretty separate from any clear strategy for achieving certain ends. And it is much more like a temper tantrum. Is that related to the fact that this has become an increasingly cult-like movement and it doesn't really have demands in the traditional sense? I mean, it does have quite specific demands. They want greater insulation in housing, for example. They want uh, an unwinding of oil production. And, uh, you know, they have these fairly specific, quite narrow demands in a sense. But doesn't the protest more broadly reflect an apocalyptic cultish outlook, which suggests that they are in possession of the truth, they can see the future. They are almost like the religiously enlightened ones who know what will befall mankind if we don't take certain actions. And that creates, I guess, a sense of arrogance, of contempt for other people, as a desire to punish the masses for their stupidity, for going about their daily business, for driving to work, for driving to the supermarket. So I guess the protest in some ways reflects the fact that they have become this very elitist, cultish minority movement that sees it part of its job, at least, to hector the public for all our eco-sins. Oh, for sure. I mean, there's definitely that cult aspect. You see it in every everything they're demanding. They're putting people down. You know, they're putting people down for driving. They're putting people down for enjoying works of art. They're putting people down for wanting to go to the grocery store and enjoy milk. So for sure, it's it's definitely that. You know, I think that particularly the cult of people around this guy, Roger Hollum, they behave in a kind of cult-like way around him. And I, I think the interesting thing, though, of course, is that like, 
you know, the whole mainstream news media and the global elites are basically part of the cult. This idea that the world is coming to an end is a, is a mainstream idea among journalists. You know, in, in global international surveys, I actually just conducted one on Google. It finds about the same. Somewhere between a third and half of all people on Earth think that climate change threatens human extinction. That's not something that's in any United Nations scientific report. It might be stated at United Nations press conferences, but there's no science for that. There's not even a mechanism for which that could occur. So for sure, that's what's going on. I mean, I think in some ways, the radicalization is sort of bizarre because it's like, look, you've won. You've taken control of all these elite institutions. Your ideology is the official religion of the British government, including the British Conservative Party. It's the official religion of the United Nations. It's the official religions of Davos and the World Economic Forum. They've made the Great Reset which is fundamentally about a transition to renewables um, for climate change. It's the dominant ideology of the global elites. Like, what more do you want? And then for them to come around and be like, well, we want them to put more money into insulating homes seems a little bit like a, like small potatoes. More interestingly, I think, was when Greta Thunberg, you know, seeking to remain relevant. You know, she's now, of course, not the radical edge. The radical edge is the just stop oil people. She's sort of now coming out with a book and kind of trying to become a little bit more mainstream. You may have noticed that she said, oh, it's better to keep the nuclear plants online than shut down the nuclear plants. I mean, that's a gosh, that's like a moderate mainstream position that she's espousing. Well, then, you know, she gets up and they at our big book event in Britain and she says, well, we have to we have to end capitalism. We have you know, this is all a problem of capitalism. And that seemed, you know, much more I'd never heard her say that before. I mean, she'd said we, we can't have endless growth, but this was specifically an attack on capitalism. And I think it was telling that it was she was sort of saying, you know, this is not just about climate change. We actually have to end capitalism. And so I think what you're seeing here is to a large extent, the climate extremists have won their their demands and their discourse are very mainstream. So in a bid for relevance and out of their narcissism and the need for narcissistic supply, which is just praise and recognition, they're now needing to go and become even more extreme. And so part of it, you see, I think, a, a dynamic, and we've seen this in the LGBT movement, I think, with the extremism around the trans issue. I mean, there's no group that had been more rapidly accepted into mainstream society than trans people. And yet you've had this just kind of hysterical war, you know, making all sorts of, of pretty wild demands Um And I think I see the same thing in the climate change movement, which is sort of like you've won, you've made it, you're mainstream, but the activists need more narcissistic supply and the leaders need more narcissistic supply. And so they're out to get it. And I think I have to say, I think some of that is definitely it's both a consequence of, I think, rising coddling in the culture and spoiling of children. But it's also, I think, a consequence of social media. Yeah. And um, I think what's interesting about the anti-capitalism of some Greens, including now Greta Thunberg, as you point out, is that it's a kind of different form of anti-capitalism than than what we might have seen a few decades ago. It's an anti-capitalism that is more interested in going back to what preceded capitalism, which was the feudalistic era and the pre-industrial era, when life was pretty tough for the vast, vast majority of humankind, rather than the kind of uh, anti-capitalism we had in the past, which was a belief, at least among certain groups and organisations, that propelling ourselves forward to a more communistic society would allow greater forms of production, greater forms of consumption. Whether they were right or wrong about that is slightly besides the point that what was driving them was a sense that industrialization could be expanded even further rather than this new form of anti-capitalism that says, well, let's go back centuries and live more simply like people did in the past. I think you, you said something a moment ago which really struck me, which was that if you were to look at the Green Movement 25 years ago, it would have been about furnishing people in the South with the means to live more comfortable lives, to protect themselves from the vagaries of uh, climate change and nature and so on. And if you went back even further than that, uh, radical politics would have been about demanding economic equality between the North and the South, between the First World and the Third World. But what we often have now, which you very aptly describe, is upper middle class British youths and American youths and and others in Europe who are essentially saying, well, if China keeps developing, my life is going to get harder. My future is going to be more difficult. 
if Africa has the same levels of industry as we in the West do, the whole world will catch on fire. My life will be ruined. There's been a real moral inversion in this kind of Western campaigning where it's now almost saying, if too many people have the life that I do currently, then everything will go to hell in a handcart, which seems to me to be a complete betrayal of the principles of equality that might have guided young radicals in particular in the past. And just coming out of COP27 and the slightly strange deal they have where powerful nations will help developing nations with certain aspects of climate change, isn't the thing missing from all of this, the old idea of economic equality, the old idea that what the developing countries really need is to develop in order that they would be more equal to us and in order that they could protect themselves from nature in the way that we often can. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I look, look at the basic demand that, that the rich world is making of poor and developing economies is basically let us pay you to stay poor. And so in that sense, there's nothing new. This is an extension of the development aid trap that these countries got themselves in after colonialism, which was basically that, you know, Europe in particular, really led by Europe, it's really Europe with Africa, but the United States, of course, gets involved through the World Bank and the IMF. And, you know, there's this moment in the post-war era where Europe withdraws from, from Africa hastily without having let, left behind functioning institutions. You then have basically cycles of corrupt leaders come to power that then get money from European countries. They steal the money. The money then is spent in charitable ways and here's where the Malthusianism comes in, is that the money then is not spent to do things that create economic development. If you want economic development, it's pretty much the same thing everywhere, unless you're an oil-rich country. It's you dam the rivers to have cheap hydroelectric power. You have manufacturing in the cities that draw the peasants from the countryside. You then make the investments in agricultural productivity in the form of fertilizer, irrigation, and tractors to produce more food with fewer people. That's basically the story you know, except for maybe the tractors. Um, that's basically the story in Das Kapital by Marx yeah. of the enclosures. You know, it's the story of Korea. It's the story of the United States. It's the story of basically everybody, you know, except for maybe the really early, the really first ones like Britain to industrialize. But basically, it's a process of industrialization. And I agree with your point, by the way. What Greta Thunberg and the other climate extremists are against is industrialization. That's really what they mean when they say capitalism. Um, they're fine with, uh, you know, their smartphones being made by enslaved, you know, Chinese or exploited Chinese uh, and their solar panels in particular made by enslaved Uyghur Muslims in China. They're fine with that. They, they just want to restore the aristocratic mode of production that they enjoyed under feudalism. But I think that that's basically what they're trying to do in the United Nations. So I point out, you know, last year at the last climate talks, the Germans paid the South Africans $800 million to not use coal for their economic development. Fast forward to today, German imports of South African coal increased eightfold. And every, whenever I point this out, people go, oh, well, you know, but Michael, I mean, there was the war in Ukraine and, you know, Germany had to import that coal. Why are you carving out an exception for Germany? Well, the reason they're carving out an exception for Germany is because Germany's already developed. And it kind of gives lie to the, the big lie, that, which is that the, the rich countries are going to become poorer and move to renewables. And the poor country are going to become richer and move to renewables. That's the whole conceit. The rich countries are not moving to renewables. Germany, if it was moving to renewables, it wouldn't be increasing its coal imports from South Africa by eightfold. So what you see is, I think, a new form and a sinister form of imperialism and Malthusianism, which is where the rich countries are basically attempting to bribe the poor countries to stay poor with amounts of money that seem large to people that don't know anything. $800 million might seem like a lot of money to somebody, but it is actually very expensive for South Africa to accept that money if it means they can't use energy to develop, if it means they can't have reliable electricity. If you can't have reliable electricity, you can't have manufacturing. If you don't have manufacturing, you can't lift your people out of poverty. So I think it's, it's quite a, a scam. I think it's quite sinister. I think it definitely involves the corrupt leaders of these countries, and I mean most of them. So I'm not letting them off the hook at all. But that's how imperialism always worked. There was always corrupt local leaders. 
Have you signed up to become a Spike supporter yet? Spike supporters is our thriving donor community. Supporters can get access to a host of perks, and I have an extra special one to tell you about. On Monday, the 19th of December at 7pm, we have the brilliant Toby Young joining me for a special live recording of this podcast, and it is exclusive to Spiked supporters. Toby and I will be digging down into cancel culture, free speech, and much more. You'll be able to watch the recording online, plus we'll also be taking questions from the audience. So if you're already a Spiked supporter, you can register for the live podcast now in the Spiked Supporters Hub. If you're not a Spike supporter, you can sign up for as little as £5 a month by going to spiked-online.com slash supporters. That's spiked-online.com slash supporters. Sign up today and claim your ticket for the live podcast on Monday the 19th. See you there. Yeah, I think neo-Malthusianism is a very good way to describe this, where uh, on the jumped up basis of protecting the world from apocalypse, we do have a situation now where people are trying to maintain a status quo that leaves poor countries poor and leaves rich countries kind of rich, but not really moving forward in the way that some of us would like them to. Um, and I want to talk about the impact of this neo-Malthusianism. That I often find myself thinking, well, in the future, this will be terrible because the poor will still be poor and some of us in the West will be poorer than we are currently. But actually, the impact can be felt right now. And this is something that you've written about as well, uh, particularly on your Substack, which is a great way for people to keep sane, is to read michaelschellenberger.substack.com. Um, and one of the pieces you wrote this year was about Sri Lanka and the extraordinary uh, situation we had in Sri Lanka where people pushed the government aside and there were uh, there was a huge uprising and it was clearly a, a response to economic turmoil, which in large part had been brought about by environmental experiments in a sense, and particularly the uh, pressure that was put on Sri Lanka to stop using fertilizers, to be green, to become the greenest nation in the world, as how some people described it. So could you just describe a little bit how you understand the Sri Lankan situation and what you think it tells us about that kind of Malthusianism that you mentioned there? Yeah, absolutely. And so Sri Lanka is just a great case study of how the West uses climate alarmism. It raises fears of future food and energy shortages because of climate change to create food and energy shortages in the immediate term, in the present day. And it, they, this has been the whole pattern. In other words, I think there's sometimes people say, oh, you know, the environmentalists are always making these predictions that turn out to be wrong. It's much worse than that. They're making predictions that are wrong in order to create shortages now. And when I say in order to, that may imply that it's conscious. I'm not suggesting it's always conscious. When you say that you want to destroy Western industrial capital civilization and then your policies have the consequence of undermining it, I don't think that's a total coincidence either. So to Sri Lanka, the context here is that, you know, the UN, you know, groups like World Economic Forum, all the big green NGOs have been telling poor and developing countries for decades that they should not use so much fertilizer. Well, this is pretty crazy when you consider that we could only sustain half of the humans on Earth if we didn't use synthetic fertilizers. Now, rich countries like the Netherlands, like the United States, and it turns out actually like China, have been able to reduce how much fertilizer they apply just through basic technological means. They're more precise in applying the, fer the fertilizer right at the root of the, of the crop or the plant. That's different from what, what the Sri Lankans did. The Sri Lankans said, we're just going to stop importing fertilizers. Mm. And to some extent, um, it's a horrible situation because, of course, farmers lost their crops. I mean, it would just reduced crop yields by somewhere between 20 and 50 percent, depending on the crops, particularly tea, which is a major export crop. Um, and that hurt their ability to make the payments on debt. Various people have said, oh, Michael, you're exaggerating the role of the fertilizer ban. It's really a financial crisis. The financial crisis was created by the fact that they couldn't produce enough tea to make to get the cash to make the payments on the debt. So it all flows from a physical reality. They had this fertilizer ban. The other response that people give to me is they say, well, the goal is still correct. They just went too fast. It was too radical of a ban. 
Either way, when you reduce fertilizer drastically, and that is in ways other than the way that the Dutch and the Americans and the Chinese have done so, which is just gradually, very, very gradually with technical means. When you slash fertilizer in those ways, you're going to hurt production. So there's there's one right way to do this, which is you use technological innovation to, to grow more food using fewer inputs, more with less. That's the benevolent tradition, the virtuous cycle of technological progress. The wrong way to do it is this kind of Malthusian demand that we reduce technical inputs in this kind of radical way. But we should be grateful to some extent that they did this. It's obviously a hardship for the Sri Lankans, but we should be grateful they did it because it was a reminder to every other country in the world that you must not listen to first world Malthusians. Beware those bearing gifts. Beware, beware Americans and European Malthusians bearing gifts because uh, it's going to end up creating a crisis in your country. And ultimately, what we saw was the overthrow of the government. So, Michael, one more thing I wanted to ask you about in relation to the climate change issue is on renewables nuclear, uh, the Green New Deal, which people are pushing for in the US and many people are pushing for one in the UK as well. And um, on the issue of renewables, of course, the claim made by Greens all the time, and I've had this in a debate on BBC Radio here just a couple of weeks ago, is that renewables is all we need to motor society. They're cheaper. It's very straightforward. Wind, solar, there you go. We don't need all the dirty stuff. The very interesting argument you've made in recent years is that not only are renewables incapable of motoring and reproducing the societies we live in, but very often they're designed not to do that. So it's almost built into the ideology of renewables not to be able to do the things that we expect energy to do. So could, could you just explain a little bit about what you think lies behind the ideology of renewables, the demand for renewables, and this notion that society could be run by those kinds of forms of energy. Yeah, sure. I mean, so most important thing to point out is that we had societies that were run on renewables. Uh, this was the pre-industrial world, and it was wood, water wheels, and windmills, and dung as the primary renewable sources of energy. Now, people say, well, we've got these modern renewables, solar panels, wind turbines, True, but the fuel or the flow, as it's technically known, has not changed. It's still sunlight and wind. And the, the problem with them is two things that everybody is mostly familiar with. It's their the unreliable weather-dependent nature, but also the low energy density, meaning there's just not a lot of energy in sunlight when it hits Earth. That is, next to the sun, there's a lot of energy. And there's not a lot of energy in the wind. So you have to spread solar and wind collectors, solar panels and wind turbines, over very large areas of land. Three to 600 times more land is required to produce the same amount of electricity from solar or wind as from natural gas or nuclear. Now, you might say, well, that's fine. We have a lot of land. Well, first of all, we don't. Um, in fact, there's huge problems every time they want to put up a big solar farm, including in Britain. I mean, Britain is much more land scarce, obviously, than the United States. But even in California, you know, we're having big problems finding the places because we actually want to protect our deserts for the desert tortoises and other endangered species. It was part of the reason I turned against renewables. Well, we now also know, and this is something that's completely consistent with the fact that it requires more land, is that the materials requirements are much larger. So just to give one sense of it, wind, solar, and batteries require 1,000% more steel, concrete, and glass, 300% more copper, 700% more rare earths, 4,200% more lithium, and it goes on and on. So the materials, so in other words, to get renewables, you have to massively expand mining, which is, you know, one of the most degrading things to do because the waste byproducts are usually toxic. You know, the, the idea that renewables would reduce your environmental impact is exactly the opposite. It increases it. Now, if you're increasing environmental impact, you're also increasing costs. It actually costs more to just have more people, more tractors, more land movers, more wires, more, more power plants. It's just more, more, more. So renewables was always based on this idea of basically radical degrowth, of basically not having prosperity and basically returning to the pre-industrial period. So when you, when you actually take the green left at their word, which is that we need to move away from industrial capitalism, right? As Greta just said, we talked about earlier. You need to move away from these things back towards the pre-industrial period. Well, that's what renewables are basically for. They're for moving back. So you see within the physical mechanism of renewables, 
is the ideological demand to move away from industrial capitalism. Now, of course, it's absolutely bonkers because if it, you actually did that, it would be mass death. You can't, like we said with fertilizer, if you don't have synthetic fertilizer, half the human population is dead. You can't survive. But the same with renewables. I mean, you would just have, but you would never, it's absurd because of course you never get to that point. You get, instead what happens is exactly what's happening in Europe, which is that they go to the religious ritual at the climate conferences. And then right afterwards, the heads of state fly around the world to beg for natural gas. They fly to Canada. They fly to the United States. They fly to Qatar. In fact, you do see some problems because the Chinese have just cut a huge deal with Qatar for liquefied natural gas. The German government did not because they've been constrained by the climate targets. So what are they going to do? Well, they're going to burn coal, including some of that coal they imported from South Africa. So so what you get is the contradictions of this climate discourse end up piling up. And I think that's also helps explain some of the just stop oil stuff, which is that you've got the elite establishment completely bought off in this kooky religion that we're going to deindustrialize and degrow by moving to renewables. But then you've got this reality that people want to stay warm and they don't want to lose all their factories. So then they're chasing fossil fuels. There is obviously a much better way to resolve this, which is that you just use more natural gas and nuclear, which are the two greatest sources of energy. Um, but instead, they're going to end up burning a lot of coal. And I hope that that ends up being the Waterloo for the climate movement, that you start to see that if you don't use natural gas and nuclear, you're just going to burn more coal and, and honestly, a lot more wood as well. Absolutely. Um, OK, Michael, I want to ask you about politics in the United States, which is really politics for the whole world um, because of the way things work. Uh, the last time you and I spoke was about your um, book, San Francisco, Why Progressives Ruin Cities. And I want to start off by asking you about what is happening in California. You stood um, against Gavin Newsom uh, in the, the governor race. Um, you didn't win, sadly. I think you'd be a great governor of California. Um, what's happening in your state in terms of politics and in terms of some of the themes you talk about in San Francisco in particular, which is the way in which progressive policies often have a very detrimental impact. They're packaged as ways to make cities nicer, fairer places, uh, but often have uh, the opposite impact and increase homelessness, increase drug use, uh, make these places often quite unpleasant uh, communities to live in for lots of people. In relation to that kind of problem of progressive politics, are things getting any better in California or are they getting worse? Well, super great question. So we just had elections, so we've been able to see some of the change. You know, it's, it's important to keep in mind that, you know, the, the combination of San Francisco and my campaign, we were disappointed to lose, very disappointed, but but very happy because I think we elevated the issues. We got this into the conversation. And there's a number of candidates who basically ran on the agenda that we were advocating around this issue of, of street homelessness, of the drug addiction crisis. And a lot of them won. And so what we've seen is interesting. So we've seen now Vancouver, British Columbia, which is also on the left west coast. We've seen now in Seattle and Portland moves by voters to elect candidates who are more moderate. And in, in San Francisco as well, there's now a moderate majority on the Board of Supervisors, which is the governing body of the city. Los Angeles, we've actually had less luck with, which is really surprising because Los Angeles is traditionally the business capital of California. It's traditionally more conservative, but Los Angeles is now more woke than San Francisco. And I think part of the reason for that is that, you know, first of all, it's always been the city of dreams. It's the city of Hollywood. It's but I think geographically, you can escape the chaos if you're upper middle class um, much more easily than you can if you're in San Francisco. San Francisco, like New York City, there are I think there's like hard physical limits on how much chaos you can have before just even the most woke person is like, we got to arrest people for breaking laws. Like, it's just too crazy. It's too, too population dense. And in fact, you even see that play out in the Bay Area where Oakland, which is less population dense, you know, continues to elect pretty radical left uh, folks. So I guess the way to summarize it is that I think the conversation has definitely changed. Um, you've seen some more moderates get elected into positions of power, but there's absolutely a battle royale underway in each of these big cities on the West Coast. And it means that this issue is going to get it's going to continue to be fought 
for probably the next, I would say, at least decade, more optimistically, a half decade. But we're dealing with addiction and and people that are, you know, hardcore drug addicts um, are just some of the most difficult people in the population to deal with. And if you're not willing to mandate treatment, if you're not willing to say, hey, you got to go, <laughs> you got to go inside and you got to get help. If you're not willing to do that, then then people will just gravitate outdoors because that's the cheapest way they can maintain their habits. So on that issue of wokeness, you, you made an interesting point there, which is that you feel that there are there is the opportunity for the upper middle classes in a city like Los Angeles, for example, to be able to rise above some of the pretty severe problems that afflict that kind of city. I mean, I've been to Los Angeles a few times. Um, you know, London has its rough areas. London is where I live. It has its rough areas, but absolutely nothing like what I saw when I was in Los Angeles and in San Francisco as well, which were huge rows of people living in tents, uh, huge amounts of homelessness, people taking drugs in public, on the street, the kind of thing that you just don't see very often in London at all. I saw it virtually every day when I was in Los Angeles. So really extraordinary uh, problems of, of drug use, homelessness, severe urban problems in that city. And do you think part of the issue to do with wokeness is that it's become a kind of aristocratic form of politics? It's become very much about having the right etiquette, speaking in the right way, moving in the right circles, winning favour by holding the right views. So it has become this almost like a court-like form of politics, which is engaged in by people who are very far removed, morally, if not always physically, from people who live at the hard end of society and who have to think at some level about more practical problems of making sure the streets are safe, making sure people have enough to live on, making sure people have homes to stay in. So it's part of the attraction of wokeness, you think, that it is a kind of very performative politics that one can engage in far away from the real problems that we ought to be talking about in relation to not only Los Angeles and San Francisco, but many other cities in the US and, and Europe as well. Yes, I you have put your finger on I think this is like the main event, you know, and, if, you know, to some extent, it's an old problem. You know, I, I was rereading Freud's little pamphlet on um, civilization and its discontents, where he's sort of drawing on Nietzsche and Nietzsche sort of, just, you, know, you know, which is basically as societies become increasingly peaceful and as human beings, particularly men, become civilized, become peaceful we still have this innate aggression, this, you know, this, and, and some of it gets channeled into capitalism. I mean, that was one of the deals that was cut in the 16th and 17th centuries. We're going to let all that male aggression and greed work out in the, in the market, but you can be able to walk down the streets and walk through the forests. You know, the places of danger are now going to be safe. And Nietzsche and Freud both kind of say, well, that means that our fantasies are going to become even crazier mm. and you're going to get this rise of these really religious political movements, you know, famously fascism and communism, but we now see it with climate extremism. Well, I see it everywhere now. I mean, it's like, you know, I would see it in LA where it's like there's chaos everywhere. I mean, it's like you were describing, it's hard for people that haven't been there to really appreciate it. You have to go and see it, but you know, there's chaos everywhere. And yet, you know, when you talk to people, it's like, it's like you're talking to people that are in a religious cult about what's really going on. Well, everybody on the street, they're there because of, of historical oppression. Are you sure it's not just because of the methamphetamine and fentanyl addiction? Mm. You sure? Because that seems like that's, you know, like a pretty proximate cause of it. They're going way back into like, you know, 17th century as the cause of why people are on the street. So you're dealing with deeply ideological people. And let me let me go further, Brendan, and just say it, it's bad for a lot of different reasons. I'd love to find some reasons, ways, ways which is good. I think it's the environment we have to work within. But even on my own campaign, you know, in attempting to get support from the people that should support a campaign like mine to reestablish some order, that would be traditionally the business class, the bourgeoisie. A lot of the a lot of the bourgeoisie, they're like, I've got a, I'm just going to go live in my second home or my fifth home in some other part of the United States, and they had very little skin in the game. Mm. So I always point out that like Carnegie, Rockefeller, Mellon, the old industrialists of the United States, they had to live in Pittsburgh. They had to live in New York. They had to live in those cities. They had to take responsibility for the city they live in. Now, I'm being a little unfair because there's actually a set of kind of the bourgeoisie, the capitalist class in San Francisco who did take responsibility and they did invest in politics to make things happen. So it is possible. But it is a huge factor. It's the it's the main event 
Like, you know, and we're just look, I mean, you just look at everybody. We're just all on these phones all day long, all day long. You're in this alternative reality. It's like, you know, walking down the street, driving in your car, eating dinner. I mean, it's people are completely in this alternative reality. And it's so darn easy to escape the chaos. And then you kind of get this other thing, which is the death of retail. Like all of these trends, the death of retail, working from home, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, the affluence that allows the, the rich to be anywhere people and work from anywhere. These trends are really powerful and difficult to deal with when creating a new politics. So I worry about it. I like to have a happy ending to when I point out some dark trend. I don't know what it is on this one. It seems to me that it's a kind of one way street towards people living more and more in fantasy worlds. Um, rather than living in reality and this physical reality that we all share. Not sure what to do about it. I don't mean to sound so despondent, but I think it's a big problem. Have you signed up to Spiked's daily newsletter yet? It's called Today on Spiked. Every day you'll get a roundup of all our content, plus some exclusive commentary from the Spiked team. So to never miss a thing on Spiked, go to spiked-online.com slash newsletters and sign up to Today on Spiked. Yeah, I think living in fantasy worlds is a very good way of putting it. And it also happens in Europe in, in slightly different ways to Los Angeles and San Francisco. But in Europe, if you look at France, for example, I mean, Paris is now essentially the city where the elites live attended to by working class people, of course, and then outside of Paris is where everyone else lives. And that does mean that policies are drafted in Paris, in the centre of power, which often run counter to what ordinary people outside of Paris need and want. I mean, the perfect example uh, was the Gilets jaunes protests that went on for uh, more than a year, where people were basically protesting every single weekend and often um, getting into violent clashes with the police. And that really sprung from uh, Emmanuel Macron and other members of the Parisian elite enforcing rules on how often you could drive, how much petrol should cost, which had an extraordinarily detrimental impact on ordinary people's lives. But the elites just didn't know that that would happen or they didn't care that that would happen. So that kind of sense of distance between politics and people's needs in the everyday world, I think, is palpable across the world. We see it in the UK as well. I, I share your your feeling that it sometimes feels like there's not much we can do about it, but there are obvious breaking points, aren't there? I mean, there was the Trump phenomenon in the, U, in the US, which was quite strange and now seems to have run out of steam. I think Trump might be a, a lost cause, even in the eyes of many of his former supporters. But that was clearly an attempt by ordinary people to say, look, we still matter. We're going to stick it to the elites who are not listening to us by using this crude instrument of Trumpism. In Britain, we had Brexit. In France, they had the Gilets jaunes, as I mentioned. In other European countries, people are electing populist parties who uh, explicitly run counter to the mainstream parties. Uh, We have Prime Minister Maloney in uh, Italy at the moment. We have the um, Orban government in Hungary. All of these people are getting into power very clearly because people, I think, are trying to bring politics back to the level of where they live in in the world. And uh, I wanted to ask you about the red wave that didn't happen in relation to all of this and the red wave uh, that was predicted in the midterms, but eventually turned out to be more of a red trickle. I thought that because of the things that you've just been talking about and because of some of the things you've been writing about, the way in which supposedly progressive democratic politics has become so distant and dismissive in many cases of ordinary people's needs and ordinary people's lives, I did think that the midterms would be seized as an opportunity by people to teach the Democrats a lesson uh, that didn't happen. What's your feeling as to why that didn't happen? Is it because of the abortion issue? Is it because the Republicans just didn't have their act together? Is it because of Trump's malign influence? What do you think was the reason that the red wave didn't take off? Yeah, I mean, it's such an interesting, this has been a fascinating conversation in the United States since the elections have occurred. I mean, I think what's interesting was part of it was, you know, before the before the elections, left and right were just in alternative realities in terms of describing what was going on. The left was saying, you know, if Republicans take back the House and the Senate, then it's the end of democracy. And the right was saying, you know, we have to send a message, you know, to Biden um, and the Democrats about how extreme wokeism has gotten. 
Um, you know, since the election, there's actually a pretty broad agreement among left and right about what occurred. And I share the consensus view. So in some ways, my views aren't, aren't super interesting or unique. But I wrote a piece afterwards, I think was one of the first to sort of point out that there was a kind of repudiation of extremes on both sides before the election. And I think in the election, I mean, you did have um, uh, the Pennsylvania Democrat running for the Senate come out in support of fracking for natural gas very strongly. Um, you did see Democrats moderate in a bunch of ways, including around homelessness. Uh, you saw Biden, you know, trying to reduce uh, energy prices by just releasing more oil. I mean, he needs to be pumping more oil, but still he's he's not he wasn't sort of demanding austerity. <laughs> um, and then after the elections, Republicans, um, you know, the most, some of the most influential Republicans and, and certainly a number of my Republican friends have pointed out that have basically started throwing Trump under the bus like pretty hardcore. You know, the you have to read between the lines. They'll say things like we had weak candidates what that means for Republicans is that they had these candidates that were that were so-called election deniers. It's such a nasty little term. But basically, people like Carrie Lake in Pennsylvania, you know, you, the running for governor, um, who in every way was a very strong candidate, except for the fact that she played down Biden's victory and they kind of suggesting that, there, that the election was stolen from Trump. All, of course, transparently to get Trump's endorsement, which they needed to win the primary but ended up sabotaging them in the general election. And you see, and Herschel Walker in Georgia, very weak candidate, you know, Dave Chappelle just, you know, attacked him as being not the brightest guy in Saturday Night Live, um, you know, uh, a week ago. You know, so there's just a bunch of weak Republican candidates. But I mean, I was shocked by a number of prominent Republicans finally just got the knives out and went after Trump pretty hard. And I think traditionally you'd be like, well, the elite Republicans were never super happy with Trump anyway. But it does appear now to be impacting support for Trump, even among ordinary Republicans. Trump is no longer viewed as somebody that can pull off a national victory against Democrats. And so I think that's very positive. I mean, I've never been a Trump supporter. Um, I've always been um, supportive in many ways of his anti-imperialism, of his, you know, his brilliant uh, demand that Europe produce more of its own energy. You know, he went to Germany and just told the Germans off and he looks great for that. You know, so I think there's a bunch of things that he did to reorient the Republican Party away from neoliberalism and back towards a kind of economic nationalism that I think really positive. The Republicans may be in a, in a better position now to, ru to run a candidate for president in, in Ron DeSantis, who I think embraces a lot of those Trump policies, um, you know, including, remember, Trump also defended Social Security and Medicare, you know, which is sort of the equivalent here of, of a conservative politician saying we're going to protect NHS, you know, in Britain, which is to say we're not going to just be neoliberals and privatize, you know, all of these entitlements. And so, you know, it could be that Republicans are in a good way. I mean, it appears that Democrats are more captive to their radicalized base than Republicans might be. Um it may be that Republicans are going to be able to escape the constraints of their base sooner than Democrats, because I think Democrats have felt emboldened by the passage of a big piece of climate legislation. I think by this latest election, by keeping the Senate, I think that the the more radical members of the Democratic uh, coalition um, did not get the comeuppance that I think we all expected them to, whereas I think that the Trump uh, base did. And I think that's going to strengthen the hand of some of the Republican moderates going into 2024. Okay, Michael, just a couple more questions for you. So on the issue of Trump and Trumpism and the prospect of DeSantis, um, I think uh, I agree with you. I was never a fan of Trump either. I thought he did lots of awful things, uh, but I also think he did some interesting things as well. But for me, what was most striking about Trump is that it was it was very obviously seen by many voters in the United States, including working class voters, as a means of um, pushing back against establishment politics, pushing back against that distance that we've talked about that has been created between the political realm and uh, people's everyday lives. And that aspect of it hasn't gone away, has it? I mean, Trumpism might not have succeeded in bringing back together politics and people but that desire of many voters for for that to happen, for them to be treated more seriously, for them to be listened to, for the establishment to take on board their concerns and their and their desires, that still exists, doesn't it? And it, it doesn't necessarily need Trump 
It can also possibly be reflected in a figure like Ron DeSantis, as you mentioned, who I think is very interesting. I think he he trips over into authoritarianism every now and then. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that banning the teaching of certain things is necessarily the solution to the undoubted problem of wokeness in schools. That is certainly a problem. But he's very interesting. He is willing to take up the issues that concern uh, huge numbers of voters, which is presumably why he did very well, not only with traditional Republican voters in Florida, but with uh, Latino communities as well. People who want politics to become sensible again, to become more normalized and to become more democratic. So do you think that people searching for a mechanism through which they can make their voices heard will continue even if the um, the tool that they use is no longer Donald Trump? Yeah, I definitely think so. I mean, I do think that I think that there is a reversion towards nationalism that is independent of Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. He was tapping into it. So you see Brexit, the Gilesian, the Trump, the Maloney victory, um, I think we're seeing it in Canada. I think we're seeing it in Mexico. You know, I mean, I, I, I see it everywhere. I mean, honestly, whenever I travel, you know, Korea, Japan, Sweden, you know, I mean, you see it everywhere. Even when those folks are not in power, you see it happening on the political right, which is what I think is making the political right much more the agent of change now than the political left. I do hope that the political left responds. And I think that part of the way that the left will respond is because the right is going to change and it's going to force the left to change. Because when the right starts taking positions, starts becoming more working class party, you know, less subservient to the kind of banker neoliberal class. And the left starts to experience the tensions around having ostensible socialists who are signing off on Chinese solar panels. (laughs) <laughs> you know, um, that's an awkward contradiction for the left. And it's something that makes them vulnerable to attacks from the right. So, no, I, I for sure. I mean, I, I'm, I'm glad that you brought us back to this because I think it is one of the things that makes me more optimistic is this is this new working class power, because, of course, it's absolutely necessary to have working class power to close the gap. You know, both, you know, the real the kind of real economic gap. But also the the other gaps, the social gaps, the cultural gaps, the more, you know, the, you know, I think I've underestimated perhaps in my own economism as a leftover from my own socialist past, you know, underestimated the extent to which the insult by the elites of the working class is an absolute material. I don't want to say material, but it's like yeah. it's real, like in being insulted, you know, um, it has it, it, being insulted. And it's so funny because, of course, it's so ancient. It's something that we are have deep in us to resist this constant insults as the deplorables, by the way, you know, as the ones clinging to religion and guns, you know, as uneducated, you know, and the conflation of education with intelligence. And when we all know that that's just not at all what's going on, this underappreciation of manual labor, you know, and this need to to valorize vocations but also just the put down of of traditional you know values of families of of working hard so i think that that's been a huge factor and and i'm glad to see this revolt you know of the working class and this demand for nationalism cuz you know national pride and economic nationalism is more often the way that working people get you know benefits from a society certainly more often i think than socialism or uh, you know, from just trickle down, you know, the working people need to demand some cult, some national allegiance and some some national, you know, binding with the with the ruling elites. And so, yeah, I, I'm very excited about that. And I think it obviously needs, you know, intellectuals to articulate it, because, um, you know, obviously, when you get to Gilets Jaunes and Brexit and Trump, it's not always the most well thought out stuff. So I think there needs to be some clear articulation of what is it? that you're demanding exactly. But I do think that that impulse that we're seeing is, is quite important and um, gives, is a source of optimism rather than just this menace, of course, that it's painted as by the liberal media. Yeah, I think that's something I feel very optimistic about as well, that a growing sense of working class power or, or a working class sense of itself, yes. uh, which is asserting itself in, in political realms across the Western world right now, which I think is incredibly exciting. It makes me laugh when the left and left-wing parties and Labour parties and Democratic parties, when they say, you know, why are working class people voting for the right? Why are they lining with the Conservative Party or 
Republicans or the Sweden Democrats or uh, Maloney in Italy. And I think to myself, well, it's because you've spent the past couple of decades calling them idiots and racists and xenophobes and semi-fascists and deplorables and uh, so on and so on. And you've treated them as a blob of people to be managed and controlled rather than as uh, working citizens of a country who should be taken seriously as democratic citizens of their country too. And when you treat people like that, they will go somewhere else. They will look to other institutions and other organizations to uh, pursue their interests. It seems to me such a logical development as a consequence of the left's own abandonment of working people. But just uh, my final question to you is, you've kind of already touched on it, which is what do you think it will take to make sections of the left wake up to the mistakes they've made. You you mentioned that the fact that the right um, now talks more about economic issues and is attracting more working class votes and uh, the Conservative Party here in the UK now sometimes presents itself as the real working class party, which is a really extraordinary development in British political history. And similar things are happening elsewhere as well, of course. What will wake the left up to the folly of their pursuit of the eccentric politics of wokeness, the economically destructive policies of climate change hysteria, the ridiculous and offensive policy of treating working people as a basket or a blob of deplorables who must be controlled, who must be re-educated, who must be hectored and told off. When will they realise the error of those ways? Or is the left right now just a lost cause for some of the progress and development people like you and me would like to see in society? I mean, the short answer is after successive political defeats, you know, they're just, I think that's what this last election proves Mm -hmm. is that if they're not, if they're not, if they don't actually lose significantly, they're not going to change. And even when they do lose, they've got a base of people that are very dogmatic. Now, again, it's same dynamic on the right and in the narcissism and in this, in the culture of of intellectual and ideological segregation, it's very hard, but it does take political loss. People want to be winners and they want to, they want their people to be in power. And that's usually what instigates people to make the change. You know, it's interesting. I mean, I think politics and the media are so tied together, right? Like you see politicians change very quickly when the media change and the media, you know, and it goes back and forth, but sometimes the politicians lead the change sometimes the media does, but they're very close. And I've noticed that, you know, um, my my last two books, Apocalypse Never in San Francisco, basically ignored by the left, by by the liberal media. I mean, almost entirely. I finally did get San Francisco did get a little bit more attention, but mostly just to be trashed by the liberal media. You know, I had all these people. Are, oh, why do you go on Fox? And of course, I'm happy to go on Fox. I'm happy to talk to anybody. I really don't care. You know, I'm a Gen Xer in that Breakfast Club mentality here, which is. Um, I believe in talking to other people. I also want people to buy my books. I'm unashamed about that. Well, lo and behold, you know, now I'm getting invitations from CNN, you know, to go on CNN or to participate in this or that project. And so and I'd always I'd been told this earlier on, which is if you can't get in The New York Times, get in The Wall Street Journal, because first of all, you get then some attention because you're in The Wall Street Journal. But also it actually puts pressure on The New York Times. Well, now we're seeing this dynamic everywhere. The New York Times is starting to cover the fact that maybe it's not a great idea to just prescribe puberty blockers willy-nilly mm-hmm. to uh, adolescents with gender dysphoria. Maybe they're not all trans. Mm-hmm. Maybe some of them are actually just gay or some of them maybe uh, are just have an anxiety disorder. You know, maybe that, you know, maybe don't rush into it. And the Times refused to cover that for years. And now they are finally covering it. You know, it took Taverstock in Britain, by the way, this clinic being sued by all these parents for that to happen. I think we're starting to see that. Um, I think we're going to start to see it on energy issues. You're certainly starting to see it on homeless issues because it's just so salient and such a concern with the public. Same thing with the media as with politics. Like, you know, it's going to take the right having success over the left and politics for the left to finally change in the same way that I think it takes, you know, people basically saying to liberal media, you're not covering this, these issues and we're going to start listening to Joe Rogan. You know, we're going to start, you know, listening to Lex Friedman and start listening to sort of alternative voices. We're going to migrate to, t- to Twitter and we're just not going to pay. So even if you have a lot of, I think, financial capital at places like New York Times, which has just a gazillion subscribers and advertising revenue, I think they have sensed that they've been on the that they've been on the wrong side of a set of these issues, that they're losing touch with the public 
and they're going to have to adjust. But, you know, ultimately, you know, uh, in politics, you know, nothing demands change like failure. So they're going to I think the Dems, the left in the United States and around the, around the world are, are just going to need to fail a lot more before they change. Michael, thank you very much indeed. Brendan, always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.